You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. In this episode, we speak with a veteran manager from Vancouver who's recently released a new fund and a product specialist from an investment dealer that's very active in the alternative investment scene. Join us as they discuss how alternative investments are becoming less of an alternative for virtually every type of client, and how the idea of 60-40 can be reinterpreted since bond yields are at record lows and the probability of having capital gains in that part of the portfolio is surprisingly low. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome, this is Alternative Thinking with James Baran from CASA. Today's Monday, March 8th, and today we have Travis Dowell of Maxim Capital Management and Jamie Price with Richardson Wealth. Uh, start with self-introductions. Uh, start with you, Travis. Uh, yeah, thank you, James. Uh, my name is Travis Dowell. Uh, I'm the president and founder of Maxim Capital Management. Maxim is a, an alternative investment management firm based in Vancouver, Canada. We manage two investment funds, the Maxim Diversified Strategies Fund, our first fund, and the Maxim Arbitrage Fund. I have about uh, 25 years or so experience in the investment industry, began my career in 1996 with a boutique firm in Vancouver called MK Wong & Associates. Uh, that might be a firm familiar to, to some of the podcast listeners. That was a well, well-known firm back in the 90s in Vancouver. Um, and that was an interesting time at the firm, not just because of what was happening in the, in the markets during the late 90s, but also because MK Wong & Associates was acquired by HSBC Asset Management. Um, you know, so a formative time for me, um, not just because it was my, my first job in the investment industry, but because I got to see the, the change that occurs when a, when a large institution takes over a, a boutique or employee-owned firm. Um, I did leave HSBC to join a family office, uh, looking to do something more entrepreneurial. And that's where myself and some partners eventually founded Maxim, launching our first fund in 2009. Very cool. Yeah, well, I'm from BC too, so it's uh, right. Like, how is it out there? Because from that from uh, from the MK Wong Group, there was another another one started up their fund, and they've gone through some changes lately as well. And uh, but there's not a ton of I don't know if there's that many in, like so called independent shops that aren't say part of a, a t- Toronto conglomerate, as you might call it there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's a how's the street like there? Because it was a small street then. I imagine like everybody kind of knows everybody, but, uh, and then you have different hours and that, but what's kind of the feel there now? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It, it, I mean, it's, you know, one that I, I kind of joke about MK Wong and associates that there was something in the water because a number of, a number of individuals that were, you know, senior portfolio managers or partners at the firm uh, eventually went on to launch their own firms post the HSBC takeover, such as, uh, you know, firms like Cypress Capital, Dean's Knight, uh, Genis Capital, all firms that can trace their their lineage back to MK Wong. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud that Maxim shares those those same roots. You know, as far as, uh, you know, what life is like on the on the street in Vancouver, I mean, obviously, it's a little different than Toronto, a smaller, um, you know, a smaller city, a smaller business environment. 
Um, you know, but you know, we we've, we've got a good group of of small, medium, and large sized firms here. Obviously, PHN mm-hmm. and Connor Clark and Lund being, you know, two of the two of the bigger firms and good firms like Leith Wheeler, and then a number of smaller um, independents like ourselves that are you know a little less known, but we like to think we're we're doing a good job. And um, it's a fairly collegial but you know friendly, competitive uh, mm-hmm. environment on the street here as well. So um, we all do know each other fairly well, I would say. Oh, very cool. So how about your funds? So you have this diversified fund for, like say, about 12 years. Yeah, in our last uh, podcast, you started, I think, on the same day as uh, as Fulcra. And you guys have kind of, of course, they're in the bond bond side and you're in the equities. And then you start you started the ARB fund. So how how is the ARB fund, ARB fund differentiated from the diversified? And uh, and is it the same teams that are running it and have kind of different headspace or is it entirely different different people on the on the trades? Yeah, yes, uh, a few things there. Um, the the Maximum Diversified Strategies Fund, our, fir- our first fund we launched in 2009, is a, is a growth of capital mandate. And it's a it's a net long bias fund. So, you know, it, in that fund, investors should expect equity market-like volatility. Uh, our, our approach in the Maximum Diversified Strategies Fund is to, is, is to look to invest in companies where we think we've found, um, you know, fundamental or hidden value. Uh, plus, we also want to find an event or a catalyst that we think is going to unlock or or drive value. You know, therefore generating generating gains for us. Um, and you know, in addition to to that approach, a sub strategy of the Maxim Diversified Strategies Fund since its inception has been arbitrage. You know, so I think the the Maxim Arbitrage Fund is a is a natural second fund for our firm. Uh, you know, given our experience with the strategy, and you know, we're we're excited to offer you know this strategy to investors. It's a it's a unique strategy that really can deliver attractive, consistent returns that have a a, a low correlation profile with you know both traditional equities and fixed income. That's great. Uh, well, let's hear about someone who knows everything about every alternative because he probably sees everything all day every day uh let's hear about your story uh how you got into richardson the kind of job you're doing there the position and maybe what you've seen how the uh the alternatives that you see on the on the platform there have uh, evolved over the years sure well thanks very much for having me um yeah richardson wealth is a canada-wide uh investment dealer and wealth manager we prefer prefer to see ourselves more as the latter than the former uh, wealth management in, in terms of putting together portfolios to help our families and our clients achieve their goals. Um, so at a high level, um, we have 165 advisor teams that are helping about 30,000 families across Canada uh, build their portfolios, whether that's saving for retirement or saving for specific goals uh, or saving for the next generation. Uh, my role within that is mm-hmm. to help create and curate our product shelf. Uh, so we look to we look far and wide, to be honest, for any investment products uh, that mm-hmm. we think can help help those families and help our advisors create portfolios that help those families uh, achieve their goals. Uh, we've taken the view that uh, the traditional public markets, uh, they are a means to an end uh, and they do what they do quite well if you have the discipline to follow them and, and keep following them. Yep. Um, but there's lots of other alternatives out there and they can bring different aspects to portfolios that our clients are after. At the end of the day, you know, we're not, a, we're not here to 
generate market returns or above market returns. Uh, we're here to meet our clients' goals. And those goals might be measured in returns. They might be measured in other things. And so we look a lot to the alternative universe uh, to try and achieve those goals. So uh, a, little, a little on my background, how did I get here? Um, I actually started my career in the fixed income space. I've been working with independent investment managers uh, since I started. Had a brief sojourn at a bank when I got purchased by one, which seems to happen at every independent <laughs> investment manager at yeah. some point in your career. Uh, so but besides that uh, brief parlay into the banking world, uh, I've stayed with the independents. And, and I've done that because um, my, my choice has been to look broadly at the investment uh, products on the horizon, uh, look broadly at all the solutions that are available. And I found most, uh, most of the career paths within really big organizations and banks tended to be razor's edge focused on one particular class. Uh, I started in the bond world, so I was a bond trader mm -hmm. and portfolio manager. And I always say if I'd stayed at the banks, I'd be trading the two-year Canada. And, you know, I, that, that's exciting because you'd be putting up two and $300 million trades for uh, pension funds and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, but you trade the two-year Canada, and that's about all you get to focus on. So through, uh, through various iterations and various owners along the way, as going with independence happens, um, I've managed to uh, create a, a really great team at, at Richardson uh, that focuses on all our investment products from fixed income through to equities, through to alternatives. And that's to me where it really gets interesting. Right? What, what is an alternative? Um, and even mm -hmm. the word, word alternative, um, I don't think I need to tell this audience very much, but uh, it's morphed a lot over the last uh, 10, 12 years. We used to consider a, a hedge fund to be the alternatives universe. And now we use that word to basically describe anything that's issued without a prospectus. Um, so as we have morphed along with that uh, and grown our product shelf accordingly, uh, we've, we've tried to cover everything from, uh, well, our plain vanilla core products, stocks, bonds, mutual funds issued by prospectus uh, through to hedge funds. Mm -hmm. Um, true market neutral, long short equity hedge funds, and then into credit hedge funds, levered funds, closed end products. Uh, and then we get truly alternative. And this was where the fun really starts. Uh, we get into private credit, private equity, uh, and even individual private investments, uh, limited partnerships and such. Um, so we, you know, we broadly blanket all that stuff as alternative. Uh, but again, we're bringing it onto our shelf and analyzing it and doing the diligence prior to our clients investing so that we can bring them a little bit of a different investment experience. Ball management products come in all kinds of shapes and, shapes and sizes, depending on what kind of portfolio you're, you're attaching them to, to smooth the ride and hopefully provide some decent returns through the cycle. Well, that's cool. That was, that was a whole landscape there. That was awesome. Thanks. Uh, yeah, because I was thinking, as you were speaking there, I was thinking back to when I was at RBC. So I kind of went from, I started at the bank. Uh, well, no, actually, I was at CM Oliver for a bit, which is, of course, uh, kind of a, I think it was mostly in Vancouver, but uh, shop. And then, yeah, then you go to the bank and it's just, it's a, it's a machine. Like, it's a great machine. Um, and then, uh, but it, it's a different feel from uh, from some of the independents and such. And uh uh, I yeah, think like they, they do what they yeah. do really well, right? The, there's, there's something to the banks. They do it really well. I just have attention deficit disorder and I need to look at more than one thing. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. So that's if you just trade the two the years bank. forever, like we, we had a guy who just traded secondary GICs. Remember Kevin Long. Yeah. We just email him in the morning. Hey, you got any sec, sec GICs? And that was it. Like that was, that was the whole thing. But yeah, 
um, I guess the nice thing about being on, on the advisory side is that you got to see everything and, uh, which is good for us ADD guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but so I've heard some stats like, like typically, and it's changing, uh, maybe a bit faster than glacially now, like the banks are adding alternatives and these liquid alts have been, been big, but it's, it's still only about 12 billion in, in the liquid alts here, which is nascent compared to like, uh, the 1.5 trillion bucks it's in mutual funds. Um, so how big is, how big of the, or how much of the uh, Richardson book is in, is in the alternatives do you think? And then how, how does that break down? Like for, for the advisors or do they all hold about the same amount or is there some that, that are real champions and others are, are not as much into the, uh, into the alts camp? Um, so what we found, uh, when you measure alternatives as broadly as I laid it out, uh, which is everything without a prospectus. Um, we are north of 10% of our assets uh, and growing rapidly. So our fastest growing asset classes are in the quote unquote alt space. Um, so it, it's a really important part of, of our asset base. Um, in terms of how our advisors and our teams are using them, um, it is also growing rapidly, but I'd still say there's, there's probably um, a healthy quarter to third who are what I'll call our power users. Um, mm-hmm. They know the space really well. They know how to construct portfolios to get the best out of these products uh, and and deal with the limitations, some of the limitations that these products give us. Um, that is also growing quickly. So I, I fully expect in the next three, four years um, that well over half of our advisors are using alternatives in some form, including liquid alts. And, and you know, the liquid alts I, I, I see as a great, um, a great foray for a lot of newcomers into the alternative space, both, both because there's mm-hmm. less friction in buying them. I mean, it's just having, having it issued by prospectus and not have to deal with yeah. uh, subscription agreements. Um, the liquidity aspect of having it daily, uh, we can get into in a bit in, in liquidity, uh, but it just makes it much easier. It's sort of a baby step into the space. Um, so if you include the, the liquid alt space, I wouldn't be surprised to see us approach 20% over the next coming years. That's awesome. Coming back to you, uh, Travis, like uh, your your funds, are they the OM, uh, so the, the exempt market, the non-prospective stuff, or are they in these liquid alts camps? I think your new one, it is a liquid alt, isn't it? Thanks, James. Uh, yes, the, the Maxim Arbitrage Fund is a liquid alternative fund offered by Simplified Prospectus. Um, you know, dovetailing a little bit on, on Jamie's comments, um, you know, the ease of access and, and, and the daily pricing the daily liquidity of a, of a liquid alternative fund is, is really, I think something that's, that's fantastic for investors and allocators and that, you know, they're now able to access unique alternatives that, you know, just a couple of years ago were, were really only available to institutions and an ultra high net worth investor. Something interesting that, that, uh, that Jamie mentioned, mm-hmm. um, you know, right at the outset of his comments in terms of, you know, the, I think he, categorized into three categories in terms of what, um, you know, what his group and himself are, are doing for investors at the end of the day, you know, first was, was strategies that generate income, uh, whether that's a primary goal or just something that investors like number two growth and then number three, um, volatility. And I think as, as the three of us know, and, and, and a lot of listeners on this podcast will probably know is the, you know, the hedge fund or the alternative space is, is definitely not, um, 
you know, a bunch of homogenous funds. There's, there's a wide variety of strategies out there and, and Jamie could speak, mm-hmm. you know, in a more fulsome way and, and you yourself, James, to all those different strategies out there. So, you know, one, I think it's a great thing that advisors and investors have the, you know, the ability and increasing flexibility to allocate uh, to strategies such as arbitrage, private credit, or whatever the case may be, traditional hedge funds, long short, um, you know, but so, something interesting, you know, I think a topic I've seen, touched on more and more over the last few years as we've been, you know, mired for lack of a better word in an ultra low rate investment environment. I'm curious to Jamie's views on, you know, ways that investors who love maybe generating income as a primary goal, um, you know, how are they doing that in in this type of environment? I mean, I've got our our own ideas and I think arbitrage can be a, a component of a, of a solution there. But, you know, if you look at the, traditional reasons why an investor would hold bonds in their portfolio and certainly the old 60 40 balance type portfolio you know number one it was was generating some steady and reliable income you know we all love that you know it's great to see the you know cash additional cash accumulating in your portfolio and then number two was the you know the resiliency benefits or the the low or negative correlation benefits you might get relative to equities from a from a fixed income portion of a portfolio, but I'm curious to, to some of Jamie's thoughts and have a conversation around, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. alternative ways that, you know, one can address that portion of their portfolio. Yeah, thanks. I mean, we've seen it all over here. Um, and it's, it's really interesting how coming through one cycle to another and, and this, this past year of market cycle has been very interesting to say the least. Um, it's been interesting to see how clients are approaching that and, and how income generation is, is really morphing. Um, but the reality of that old 60, 40, and we started with this many years ago with, with writing, what are the 40, um, is what are clients doing to replace that 40? Because the reality mm-hmm. is that the income's just not there. You know, if I, if I look to, um, well, we look to the, uh, to the universe bond index in Canada as a proxy for, for that 40%. Uh, today, we're yielding about 1.7, uh, and it's notable that that's up significantly in the last two months. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, seems we're ama- up to that. <laughs> yeah, seems amazing to say 1.7 is uh, is high. That's uh, right. But we're up to 1.7 today uh, on a duration of, I believe the index is about eight on a, on an effective duration right now. Um, but the the interesting thing about bonds is we kind of know our return going in. Um, that's what a yield is outside of a default. That's what you're going to get from that bond. And when we were measuring 60 forties back in the old portfolio theory days, when it made sense to do so, we'd be looking at three, four, five, sometimes even 6% out of that portion of your portfolio. So if we used four as, as a, as a medium there, and we assume call it 9% for very long run equity performance on a year. Uh, we know the equity market never does nine, but it averages nine. Um, you're coming out with a seven, and, and that's that's pretty decent uh, for a client to to be able to mm-hmm. plan towards, plan a retirement towards. At one point seven, uh, we drop that down to a six, so so a full point out of that forty percent of the portfolio. Um, and it's interesting to watch through cycles how clients. Uh, and investors will get more aggressive or less aggressive to try to maintain not just the 7% that they used to get out of a 60-40, but go for the equity-like returns. 
And this is, this is just a standard behavioral cycle. Uh, as we get closer and closer to the top of the cycle and equity returns look better and better, uh, everybody wants to chase that 100-0 portfolio as opposed to that 60-40 portfolio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so interestingly now, I'd say we're, you know, here, here we are in March 2021, uh, the last couple of weeks notwithstanding markets at all-time highs. I'd say we're closer to that than, uh, than I've seen it in a long time. Uh, the, the closest I've seen to it recently was February, right before we got hit with the, with the COVID bear market. Um, otherwise, I think you need to look back to 99. Um, but the interesting part is that clients now have the ability to chase those market-like returns with income-focused products. Uh, and they didn't really have that before. Um, they could chase into high-yield bonds. So their options were limited to basically add credit or add duration. Um, and that game seems to be alive and well in the credit space, but in the in the duration mm-hmm. game, simply going to longer bonds isn't really getting you a whole lot more anymore. Um, yield curve is steep now, um, but it you know it's not even close to the four or five or six percent long bond returns that we that we would see uh, several years ago. Um, so giving up credit seems to be the most common form of trying mm-hmm. to squeeze out more returns. And whether that's going to um, investment grade credit, uh, then I'm finding levered investment grade is the next go-to beyond that. Um, and then into the high yield space to try and find more returns. And then the levered high yield space. So, uh, Oh, yeah. No, we can so, double so that, the high yield. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. And, and another interesting thing we're noting is um, we're finding clients taking less leverage at an account level um, in the form of pure margin accounts, uh, but they're taking far more leverage within the products that they're buying. Oh yeah, and, and a lot of these alternative products allow them to take that leverage to to try to create those returns, tri- create four, five, or six percent returns out of products that yield two and two and a half percent. So, what do you think, Jamie, of like a product like or, or like a strategy like the arbitrage one, which has pretty low vol? Uh, like you're a fixed income guy. If you were, it's not two year Canada's, but maybe it's got the vol of like longer dated bonds, but some hope in the future of actually making money, unlike others. Yeah. What, do, you, do you think that that's like you know that's a that's a substitute that people could realistically look at, or is it like, hey, you know what, that's still equity and it's still in the equity bucket? Well, I'm I'm a traditionalist, as I said, I grew up on the bond desk, um, and so when somebody tries to call something that's not fixed income fixed income, I get my back up about it. Um, fixed now, income like, I mean, come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we'll we'll call it fixed income like. I remember one time they used to call uh, infrastructure like assets infrastructure. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, and, and there's a reason you're, you're absolutely right. It's lower vol. Um, and I think an arbitrage strategy is is a way to go around that. Um, and I encourage it. You know, I, I think one of the things that needs to be adjusted in general is that 6040 is just not the split anymore. You cannot, for the most part, achieve the same types of goals as you did before. Um, and let's let's remember, you know, we did the easy math to find that 6040 uh, in a nine percent and four percent world, makes uh, makes a seven, or in today's world, makes a six. Um, but that's not the that's not the only goal. Some of the other goals that need to be maintained are the liquidity of the portfolio, uh, the volatility mm-hmm. of the portfolio, uh, and the reason that we call it sixty forty and not here's my stock portfolio and here's my bond portfolios is because we maintain it that way. We maintain those balances, and we expect the equities to be volatile. And we buy more when they go down. So when the equity market takes your 60-40 down to 
55, 45, or even 50, 50. Mm-hmm. The whole point was to be able to sell off some of your bond assets and buy more of your equity assets and get them back in balance. Um, yeah. And the other and, big benefit is it's got, uh, you know, if you don't correlate, cause now bond and stock markets are correlating from time to time. And it's like, hold it now. Where, where'd that benefit go to? Like, <laughs> I yeah, know. Hu- huge <laughs> benefit. And, and that, um, that generated a lot of the returns was that, you know, one was zigging while the other was zagging. Yeah. We um, could rebalance and make money. Yeah. Kinda. Yeah. So, so I always look at, you know, I look at the bond allocation, the true bond allocation of a client's portfolio and what it was supposed to bring. And it was supposed to bring returns, right? We always wanted yield. Uh, it was supposed to bring uh, liquidity, right? And yep. the ability to rebalance at times. Um, and it was supposed to bring lack of correlation or negative correlation. Um, and so anytime that one of our clients wants to diversify away from traditional bonds, which I encourage, I want them to do that. Um, mm-hmm. I just want them to know what they're giving up. It's very rare. In fact, I believe it's impossible to not give up one of those aspects when you're moving away, right. moving down from a 40% allocation to maybe, you know, maybe it's a 15% allocation in, uh, in true fixed income. And part of that uh, 25 that you're giving up goes to strategies like merger art that from a correlation standpoint tend to be a checkbox. That's something you want from a returns, from a returns perspective, we're hoping to get similar type of returns. Um, so, so that's one of those mm-hmm. strategies that, yeah, we're, we're going to get the same behaviors out of the portfolio. Uh, but we just need to be clear that we're not calling it fixed income and that there, there are going to be times where, you know, where we get into a truly negative correlation <clears throat> situation where owning 30 year Canada, zero coupon bonds, uh, while they skyrocket and everything else is dropping, you're just, you're going to miss out on some of that. Mm-hmm. Right. I think you're yeah, fine, Travis. That... Does it correlate with, with bonds or with stocks or how does it? How does it react compared with the markets, or maybe not in your specific? Because it's a little bit shorter term on your um, on your performance uh, streams thus far, but like generally with the the arbitrage kind of strategies. Yeah, and I, I'll, I'll jump in quickly on what Jamie mentioned there with respect to um, you know either arbitrage or other strategies as a as an allocation in a portfolio. And I think mm-hmm. you know it's interesting. We've had a number of conversations with investors, um, uh, you know, with respect to allocating to arbitrage and our our fund in particular, hopefully. Um, and you know, we like Jamie are not. Uh, calling it a fixed income strategy. Uh, we do highlight that there are a number of, uh, of characteristics and attributes to the strategy that uh, could be considered fixed income like, but I'm always a fan of explaining what the strategy does, what its benefits are. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, whether with any strategy, and I think the exciting thing for allocators today and, and for investors at the end of the day is that there are a wide variety of strategies with different goals and different characteristics that you can consider and include in, in a portfolio. So, you know, the 60-40 allocation historically is, is it was black or white. Um, and now we've got, you know, shades of gray in between with, with all the different strategies that can be employed. And I think that's, that's exciting from, from an allocator's perspective. Um, and, you know, from our perspective, uh, you know, with the, with the Maxim Arbitrage Fund, um, you know, we like, you know, uh, it's a strategy, again, we've employed for, for, you know, over a decade, and I've got experience with it, as do my colleagues prior to, uh, prior to founding Maxim, but the, you know, some of the characteristics of the strategy um, are yield like, um, you know, Jamie mentioned that when you buy a bond, you know, your return going in, 
Um, when we buy, uh, when we invest in an arbitrage situa- situation, you know, buying a company at $9.50 when there's a definitive agreement on the table for it to be taken out at mm-hmm. uh, $10 three months from now, we know we're going to make a 50 cent return or, you know, roughly 5% in that, in that crude example. So there's a similar characteristic there with, with, with fixed income and that you, you, you more or less know your return going in. Sometimes the time frame um, isn't there, but you know, the, that yield like return exists because of, you know, the time value of money uh, that you have to wait for the merger transaction to be closed and, and any associated deal risk either perceived or, mm-hmm. or, or real or actual uh, with the transaction. So there's a few characteristics there, but you know, when you've got a portfolio of these transactions uh, in a fund like ours, you can generate a nice, consistent, oriented return. And, you know, as long as the transaction, the merger transaction between two companies closes, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if the market goes up or down. It matters that to us to generate the return that our transaction closes and we receive our $10 in that crude example I gave. So I think there's some similar characteristics. But yeah, I'd, I'd agree with Jamie that you you don't want to call it a fixed income strategy. But if you're if you're, you know, if you're looking through to the characteristics of what a strategy like this can provide, um, you know, it does give you low correlation benefits vis-a-vis equities, uh, vis-a-vis fixed income as well, um, and a nice stable return profile, which can have a, which can fit into a, an overall portfolio. But you know, it's great that there are so many, you know, tools available to construct a, a modern portfolio that's going to be resilient through time. Things like arbitrage or, or private debt and credit strategies like like Jamie mentioned to really provide yeah. that balance and diversification, which I think is which is key, especially with we've seen, you know, certain pockets of this market environment we're in today where there's been, you know, speculation moving certain areas to, you know, fairly uh, uh, speculative levels, let's say. Well let's let's go into one of those pockets and it sounds like speculation, but SPACs. And those are those have been like the just the you look at the chart on how many have come out, especially in the states, but also up here. And you know it's just been like ballistic, like how many new new issues and people are making a ton of money at them. They're in all these new areas like EV, like electric vehicles. Like, are you guys in that market as well? With with because it sounds like an arbitrage sort of strategy, or is it strictly the the mergers, the M and A stuff that you're in? There definitely has been some speculative activity with with SPACs or or special purpose acquisition companies. You know, we've seen record issuance last year, uh, record issuance so far this year of, of SPACs, which I think is a, you know, that's really, I think, a byproduct of the, the liquidity we've seen injected into this market environment and investor risk appetite. You know, and those two factors, I think, really do go go hand in hand together. In our arbitrage fund, you know, we focus on delivering consistent returns with a low risk profile. And so, we engage in what we call SPAC arbitrage. We don't engage in SPAC speculation. I think there's a there's a key difference. You know, the, the unique structure of a SPAC really does allow for a very attractive risk-adjusted return profile. Um, you know, a, a profile that can be described as uh, tails I win a bit, heads I win a lot. Now, you know, SPACs are publicly traded equities and therefore their their share prices are subject to the to the risk on risk off nature of the markets. However, you know, the most unique feature of a SPAC is that the investor holds a redemption right at the trust value of the SPAC. 
that provides the investor with downside protection, you know, essentially a defined minimum value at which they're able to, to sell their shares. You know, as an arbitrageur, we aim to buy below this redemption value. Therefore, therefore, you know, exposing ourselves to the optionality on the upside, but limiting or actually still profiting on the downside. Um, and then if on rumor or speculation of, uh, of the next Tesla going into a SPAC, um, you can see, and we have seen in this market environment, substantial equity gains. You know, as an arbitrageur, we are then actively exiting those SPACs. We're not holding on and making a, a fundamental bet that a SPAC that it was issued at 10 and trades to 15, we don't want to own it at 15, hoping it's going to go to 20 because investors are going to like the business that's merging into the SPAC vehicle. Um, at that point, we're exiting and we're taking a very nice return and redeploying it into, again, lower risk arbitrage oriented oriented bets. But you know, the issuance of SPACs has been, I think there's been over, I think we're probably north of 60 SPACs issued so far this year, billions and billions of dollars raised and looking for, looking for deals. Um, you know, so I think we're going to continue to see a lot of volatility there and, you know, our advice to investors and what we're doing within the fund is, is taking a very conservative approach to that. Uh, because there is, you know, if you own, if you own a SPAC at $20, there's downside to, of, of 50% down to that $10 price. So, um, I'd say, you know, we're not looking to make those fundamental bets. We're making, looking to make quantitative arbitrage, uh, investments in, in our fund. Very cool. Thanks Travis. Uh, how about you, Jamie? Like what's your, what's kind of, I know you in the, uh, I guess, uh, you're kind of the advisor to the advisor or you're making sure that they have the right products in their platform, but what, what do you think investors should be looking for as they go forward in this, this year? And uh, God, we haven't even talked about COVID. I don't know if you have a, uh, a talk on, or an idea of the COVID opportunities coming out of uh, out of that great, you know, health health epidemic, uh, health, health catastrophe that we had. But yeah. um, like, what what's uh, what, what would you say to to uh, I guess advisors and clients that are saying, hey, you know, how do we how do we get through twenty twenty one? Twenty twenty was great, but you know, yeah, let's let's look at twenty twenty one. Yeah, I never I never thought that um, we would finish up twenty twenty having had a 30% drawdown on major equity indexes and still be looking back saying, wow, what a great year uh, with the NASDAQ, for example, you know, posting its fifth best record or its fifth best year ever, um, including the drawdown. Um, pretty wild. So what are we looking for? Well, you know, I think there's been some extremes in the market. Um, I think I caught the sentiment earlier from Travis. Uh, I certainly share it. Um, markets look very expensive to us now. You know, markets can stay expensive; they can stay irrational. Um, so we don't. We try not to make outright calls like that because, really, we just need to follow a plan. Uh, and the plan is really in the construction mm -hmm. of the portfolio. Um, so, what do we do when equity valuations are high, bond yields are really low? Uh, we do look towards alternatives. We do look towards alternative strategies to. Uh, to try to generate consistent levels of income, to try to remove any correlation from the market. And I'd encourage investors to do that. Um, it's a great way to, uh, to achieve one of those three goals that we're talking about. You know, there's a, there's a couple of specifics in there as it relates to SPACs that we were talking about earlier. I think it's going to be a phenomenal couple of years for venture cap funds that are exiting their, their positions. There's never yeah. been more demand for, for private companies coming out of the VCs. Um, so that could that could lend well to that early stage. Now, what happens after is anybody's guess, but um, you know, anytime there's uh, 
there's a misallocation of capital, either too much of it or too little of it into a sector. Uh, there's usually unbalanced outcomes and you want to be on the right side of that unbalance. Um, so we're, we're encouraging investors to have a look at that. Um, drop the old 60-40. I mean, we're, we're going to keep talking about it forever because it's really, you know, it's locked into the invex, investor lexicon to, yeah. to talk about portfolio It's a CFA allocation. thing, right? It's, like, yeah. it's in every CFA text. You're going yeah. to learn it, so... Yeah, we're, we're all, as investment professionals, we're all going to be stewed in it. Um, we should all know enough about it to know that it's actually probably a bad uh, bad uh, allocation model for us to follow going forward. Uh, I don't know if I want to look at it as simply as saying, well, get, get into 60, 30, 10, where that 30 is alternatives of some form. But you do want to look to managers that have the tools that we just don't have on an account by account basis. And that can be hedging tools, it can be leverage tools, uh, it can be long short, uh, it can be derivatives. There's all kinds of different options out there that allow us to carefully and cautiously meet the goals that we need to meet. And you know, it's sometimes they're held out there as being a little, uh, a little off the wall or a bit risky, so to speak. Um, and we just don't buy it. It's just another level of diligence we need to do. Uh, it's another level of trust that we need to come to with the managers that we pick to be on the platform. That's awesome. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, you have the Cap M that you learn in economics class, and then you think, oh, well, there's behavioral finance, there's people using fractals to figure out, you know, patterns in the market. There's so many other things that are not like the new Cap M, like yeah. the 60, 30, 10 would be. Like, okay, it's the same paradigm. You're just changing some numbers. You got to kind of think of, think of a new, new way to, uh, to kind of bring in all these different different facets of the market that we have here. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. You know, it's a, it's like efficient markets. We we know they're not efficient. Right? Oh, yeah. they, they might be over the very long term, but in in the shorter and medium term, our own psychologies are going to get in the way of those markets being efficient. Uh, so so why do we bother studying it? Um, let's let's go back to total portfolio return. Let's look mm-hmm. at where the where the investor needs to be in 10, 20, 30 years or whenever their time horizon is. And let's try to hit those goals instead of uh, instead of worrying about uh, an asset allocation model that we already know is a bit broken. Very cool. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Travis. We'll uh, look forward to having you guys on another podcast again uh, sometime soon. Thanks a lot. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Thanks, James. Thanks, Jamie.